Welcome to the Bird Enough Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This is episode number 49 and we have a special episode planned for our 50th episode next week that you don't want to miss. We'll be recording the episode live at the Lazy Moose in Umkamaz on the KZN South Coast this week Saturday at around 8am. If you want to come and join us for breakfast and meet the team, the Lazy Moose have an amazing buffet breakfast for only 99 Rand a head from 7.30 until 11am. We will pop a link to their Facebook page in the comment section of this page. We would love to get to meet you and say hi. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Seropsy Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird locking app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. For today's show, we have the author of the newly updated Southern African LBJs Made Simple, Doug Newman. For anyone that struggles with LBJs, this is a must-have book that looks to simplify the process of identification. In this interview, Doug tells us all about the book and why it should be on your bookshelf. But before we chat to Doug, we have an update from the Widow family who are traveling around South Africa as a family, not only to see as many birds as possible, but also to raise awareness for the BirdLife South Africa Community Guide Project. So let's hear from Craig, Christine, and their two kids, Ren and Finn, about how it's going. How's it going? Hey, guys. So yeah, we're officially 50 days into our birding big year, and um, it's been pretty hectic. Yeah, it's been incredible, <laughs> really busy. Um, been in such a journey for us as a family um, and also incredible time just um, getting into our birding big year it's been amazing yeah so I think for us the, we started off at Mkuzi and uh, our first bird at half past two in the morning was a spotted eagle owl which was very very cool to get and, and what, a, yeah, what a wonderful bird to start off the year and then we were... yeah it was quite a struggle actually those first couple of weeks um, the weather was terrible. It was um, an absolute gale force wind, which was not ideal for birding. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the kids battled a lot, you know, with the adjustment. I think with all the prep and the kind of planning that went into it, um, they they really struggled at the start to get into this kind of new way of life, you know, in the car a lot and long journeys. And um, but yeah, they it took them. I think. I think it was about four or five days. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think once they realized that getting a new home and a new area was quite exciting, was part of the adventure, they they settled in so well. Um, it's definitely been part of the adventure is finding a new home <laughs> um, and visiting new places and seeing new birds. It's, we try to include them as much as possible, which has really helped because um, they get so excited to see the specials of the area. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely been a, a a major highlight for us is kind of seeing the joy that they get from this experience as well. Um, and then yeah, we, we managed to do a lovely northern Zuland trip up to Vakastrum. Those of you who've been to Vakastrum know what a, just an incredible spot it was. Uh, what is and we managed to also meet up with our first community bird guide, Lucky Nguenyu, who was also just a phenomenal source of information. And also it was wonderful just to see where he came from, you know, his life and and the way he led us into his life was was phenomenal. So we really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, we look forward to getting back to um, Pumalanga one day <laughs> yeah. along this year and, and seeing more of it. But it was such a beautiful sneak preview. 
I think a meeting of the community bird guides um, across the couple of provinces that we've visited has been incredible. It's been uh, one Absolutely. of our highlights. Yeah, we've also managed to connect with some really cool birds. So as we stand right now, we're on 458 birds, which we really happy with our process. We're kind of aiming for around the 500 mark by the end of end of Feb. Um, and yeah, some of the cool ones we've seen, it's kind of the noteworthy ones, are broad-billed sandpiper, obviously. Um, the Madagascar cuckoo, after battling with that bird for a few times in, in Shishlu, we managed to connect with him up in... Um, in Bloemfontein, so during, which is wonderful, and the Pacific Golden Plover down at Hamburg was also just such a treat. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then also meeting some of the the amazing birders um, in the birding community across Africa. It's been quite incredible meeting different people and also just seeing the kindness and um, just the most passionate, wonderful people that have taken us out and shown us their favorite birding spots in the area. We're so grateful for all the time and all the effort that everyone's made to just message us and to help us along our journey. Um, yeah, and for those who have accommodated us, <laughs> we are so grateful. It's the only way that this has been possible, so thank you. Um, but yeah, that's that's been one of my highlights, is just getting to meet different South Africans um, who have a common interest and who are supporting us as a family. It's been amazing. Yeah, we've been really blown away by that. Everyone who's kind of, we've met up with and that you've you've really made us feel so welcome in the different provinces, some areas we haven't even never birded before. It's been it's been wonderful. You know, some people like uh, uh, John and Tony up in Joburg, uh, Rick Nuttall, who, who's been a constant guidance to us at the moment, and, and Mike Buckham and Josh, who took us around in, in Cape Town, and uh, Tim and Justin, when we were out in the wilderness area. So yeah, we've been blown away by everyone who's really just who's given us so much of their time. And yeah, we're really looking forward to the next stretch. So we're off in two days' time up to attack the Limpopo province. Yeah, we can't wait. Yeah, and endure the rain. So yeah, hopefully that all goes off without a hitch. But yeah, keep keep tuned and we'll try and keep in contact as much as possible. Yeah. But yeah, thanks for all the support and we look forward to giving guys some cool updates soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Right now, the Woodrow family is in the Kruger National Park be sure to follow them on social media. All the links will be in the comments section of this episode. So, let's hear from Doug. So, yeah, we're going to chat all about your book that has just come out, Fresh Off the Press, Southern African LBJs Made Simple. Now, I want to be honest with you. When I first saw this title, I read it with a touch of skepticism. I mean, you say we can make LBJs easy. We are talking here about a group of birds that includes warblers, pipits, cysticulars. Is it really possible to make LBJ identification simple? Well, that's obviously what we've attempted to, and we feel we've we've succeeded pretty well with with the book. So essentially, I suppose like with most birds, if you see a bird from a particular angle, and you get to see certain features, then the identification becomes easier. If you see them at a different angle, maybe you can't see the obvious characteristic features, it becomes tougher. So it really was a case of, can we find features that are more easily discernible from one LBJ to the next and focus primarily on those? When we do a podcast like this, the assumption we obviously, a lot of people think that everyone listens as birders, but a lot of people listen to this podcast are either not birders or perhaps are new to birding. Then they see this term LBJ. What does this term mean and what kinds of birds are covered in the book? 
So LBJ literally stands for little brown jobs. So it's uh, really birds that do not have any characteristic features and they tend to be some sort of brown or kind of a buff khaki color. You know, some sort of nondescript plumage that doesn't make it easy to separate one member of that family from the next. And we have broadened it a little bit beyond traditional LBJs, which would be larks, pipits, sisticulars, warblers, those sorts of things. And we've included some of the other things that people might battle with, for example, female sparrows, honey guards, that sort of thing. What's interesting about the book is the book, The Birds That It Covers, because I'm really really glad it covers things like some of the weaver species and that, which, you know, when they're in their breeding plumage, they, they're quite easy to identify. But as soon as they get this drab, non-breeding plumage, all of a sudden, they become quite cryptic also. And it's great that the book also covers those kinds of birds. Yes. In actual fact, what we were hoping to cover, but it just ended up a little too much for the size and scope of the book, was we had actually done the identification model for sunbirds, specifically the female sunbirds. That was quite a bigger headache than I thought it would be. So we're going to get a sunbird identification book in the future. Uh, that, that would be good. Yeah, I, th I think what I like about the book, I've got it in my hand here, and it's a nice small book. A lot of the field guides on the market are great, and you know there's some really good field guides on the market. But what's nice about this book, it's only 152-odd pages. It's a light book, and the drawings are quite simple. And you know when you look at the, the pictures you've used, it's not like you know a lot of the books have 10 different pictures. It's, it's, you basically point out the most important features to look for all on on the bird i think for a a newer birder when they get a book like this in their hands it's it's going to in some small way i don't know if it's going to make every lbj easy to identify but i think it's going to in some way it's going to to make that path to identification a little bit easier yes so there was two strategies with the book the first thing and i've been asked how it or, or in actual fact does it compete with other similar works um, that are currently available and more specifically how simple is the book so the, the twofold thing is that when we when we put the book together we realized that there are a lot of good um, books on the subject matter already you know there's some of things like um, Francie's Puppet book he's got an LBJ book as well Plus, if you delve into the massive tome of the Big Robert 7, the LBJ information is, is daunting. So what we really did was we said, when you're in the field, have only what's needed to make an identification in the field and a little bit more information. If you then want to go and read up more about a particular family or species or whatever, there are lots of other works that will then complement what we do. But we certainly didn't set out to be the all-encompassing LBJ book, but what we did hope to be is the easiest LBJ book to use. I think a question that might be a bit of a tricky question to answer, but let me ask this question. What do you think qualifies you to write this book? So bizarrely, which will sound weird for an LBJ book, but my scientific and mathematical background, and in actual fact, my co-author friend Gordon who's now living in Australia his father had a massively high level mathematical background and when he actually had a look at the work we did 
not from an ornithological perspective, but he advised Gordon that he could possibly actually consider submitting it as some sort of university work on mathematical entity modeling, which is effectively, without going into the detailed science of entity modeling, how we constructed the book to make sure you don't potentially have false identifications by using the pointers um, and so on. So, yeah, effectively, once we realized how well the model worked, the model is applicable to anything. So Gordon was in Kruger Park and he was struggling with antelope and he thought it surely can't be this difficult. So whilst we're not mammal experts, yes, we did a lot of research to pull it into the model. We then went on and did Mammals Made Simple because we felt that was a book that was needed. So it's not about being LBJ experts, but more about entity modeling as such. I've had some really good chats with you on the phone and you're really a fascinating person to chat to. And I think first thing which is really interesting is that you've got that Newman name attached to you and they use your calls on the Newman's Bird app. Interesting thing is that you are not any way related to the late Ken Newman. No, bizarrely so. I mean, the fact that I'm up to, I think, my fifth or sixth book I've published now, yet I'm not related to the famous late Ken Newman is both tongue-in-cheek a little amusing that that I'm a, I'm a Newman bird author. So you aren't related to Ken Newman, but who are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about who you are away from birding. What are some of the things that, besides birding, make you tick? Ultimately, and this is where I got into bird call recording, is, is I have a, a wide range of interests around electronic stuff. So actually, I, before I got into birding, I was into music and recording music and building a little home studio and whatnot. And obviously the lead into bird call recording from that knowing about sound recording was a natural progression as I got interested in birds, uh, photography, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of interests that complement birding, but they're not. So my photography and my videography, whilst I'm known on the Facebook circles for the bird stuff that I do, I have a lot of other interests with my photography outside of birding. And you're also into music, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to think now. I'm sure I've seen some some stuff with music with you on Facebook also. Yeah, at one point, my fiancé and I actually, both before COVID hit and all the music scene went belly up, just for fun and a little bit of pocket money, so to speak, we actually had a little two-piece band we used to play in some of the local restaurants and things in Joburg. So, yeah, my interests are quite, quite broad. And what's your music interests are you a justin bieber fan or a little bit older what does your music interest look like good heavens probably not justin bieber but very broad actually from classical music huge beethoven fan for some reason right through to heavy stuff and yeah i've got quite a broad music interest it's been quite a bit of fun. I've actually was given a, an LP player. So I've been playing, to, actually today, funny enough, I was listening to old Elvis LPs. It's been quite cool to get that old vinyl sound and it's, it's something different about vinyl. Uh, so yeah, we're going to chat about your book a bit more. So the first thing is, this is the second edition of the book. And I was speaking to someone the other day who has the first edition. So what are the differences between the first and the second edition? Because obviously a lot of people say, well, I already have LBJ's Made Simple. Why should someone go and get the the new edition of this book so the first thing is that obviously there's the ongoing taxonomic debate of lumps and splits 
So some things have disappeared. Some of the pipits like long-tailed and Kimberley pipits are no longer species. So those were removed. And then in addition, there's a couple of new species that were added as new vagrants to our region. So the rufous-tailed scrub robin, Upshur's warbler. So we included those. Then as well, in first edition, the whole premise of the book was to not make it too advanced and put onerous tasks on people to make identification calls that unless you're a hardcore seasoned birder with decades of field experience, we make requirements of you to make identification calls that you're simply not able to make. That having been said, if you take, for example, the marsh and the two um, reed warblers, pretty much for most birders, they're not separable in the field, particularly the Eurasian reed and African reed warblers. So in the first edition, we said not separable in the field. Yes, if you know your calls and, and, and particularly your UK calls, you might be able to, by ear, make a call that you hear a lot more European species in one warbler's recording. But that's again for the seasoned birder. But in second edition, we added the wing formulas just so that there's at least something. And yes, a birder can't use that unless maybe they're lucky enough to get the perfect wing shot in flight that they can see the wing spread out. But we just added stuff like that in. So where stuff was inseparable in the field, we added something to at least give people to work with. And then a couple of key difficult groups. So within the larks, you've got a troublesome group of rufous naped flappet and the two clapper larks. So we did a little separate two-page spread on giving them a bit more detail. Same for the red lark complex, so you know, red karoo, barlows, all of those larks. So there's a couple more focus areas. And then one thing, because our model is visual and things are split into visual groups, in a traditional book sense, you will switch to rufous-naped lark and there's a number of subspecies or races that look different and they're all on one page and it's a bit of information overload. In our book where the the races are visually different, they appear in completely different visual groups if need be. And then the maps for those races don't show the whole of Rufus Nape Lark, it just shows where that particular race that we're referring to occurs. So there are a lot more subspecies included in the book than were with first edition, particularly because books like um, Robert's Geographical Variations and a lot of other information about subspecies identification came out post first edition. So we've definitely strengthened it. And in a few places where people mentioned things they struggled with, we just strengthened the identification model a little bit. Yeah, one difference between the first and the second edition is the first edition came with the CD with calls in it. This one here, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, before... I got the book. I actually spoke to Pippa Parker with, uh, you know, with Strike, and I had a chat to her. I just said what I was a bit skeptical about the barcode, the barcode thing, because I liked using the 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 CD. But I must be honest with you, the the barcode system in the book is really good, and it uses the Strike Nature Call app, which is a little bit different to the first edition. How does this work? Yeah. So what what you'll do in the book, there's a, a barcode by each species, and you scan that, um, and then it calls up if there's just a call. It'll load that up. In some of them where there's a comparative track as well, where we have a narrated track telling you how one species sounds different to another, it it also shows you the comparative track. So you can play both just by simply scanning that page of the book. 
it well for twofold it obviously makes it a hell of a lot easier because the book is easier to package and distribute without the cd but also cds are long long dying um I was actually helping my son with a school project to do a, a car and we wanted to use CDs for the wheels. I struggled anywhere in Joburg to find CDs. It, it's such an archaic technology now that if you release a book with a CD, there's a good chance that most of the people who buy it won't even have a means of playing the CD. Yeah, it's quite crazy. I mean, we were just reading today uh, one of the articles about Musica closing. It's just how the whole you know, things are changing. And I think it's just, the book is just basically sticking with the times. And you know, the, the other thing is, if you have the book in your backpack or something and you out on the field and you want to get a, a bird call, I mean, it's not the old days, you'd have those little CD Walkmans. You don't carry one of those anymore. So the easiest way to do it is actually to have it in your phone. And I must, what I did like with it was, um, you spoke of those comparative calls. I don't know if you want to chat about that a bit, because I was trying that with some of the warblers and you would basically speak about the ones there where there'd be confusion and you slowed the call down to to show how the call slow, uh, sounded a little bit slower and you almost walk people through so they can say these birds are quite similar and you basically walk them through so they they would know what to listen for to differentiate the calls. I don't know if you want to just chat through the, that, you know, where you compare the different calls. Yeah, so particularly with something like a warbler that's particularly fast-paced, to hear the nuances and detail can be tricky if you're not attuned to listening to bird calls often. So what we'd do is we'd go, okay, here's a great reed warbler and it's particularly scratchy. And then we'd go, here is a excerpt of the scratchy note at half speed. And then you'd play the call at half speed. So you can slowly take in the subtle differences and then play it at full speed. So you allow, allow people to hear the structure. Um, so particularly when you've got, for example, say an African reed warbler that's got that three to four noted repetitive phrase, then it moves to another phrase and so on. I found in the beginning when I pointed out to people, say, can you hear the repetitive phrase structure? And it was too fast for them. So to hear it at half speed, you can better hear it. Then when you go back to full speed, it's more obvious what you're listening to. One thing I find a little bit confusing, and I'll ask you to explain this. You had for example, on page 44, you have the rattling cesticula, and I kind of was looking at the features, and then I was like showing someone how the book works. And then I saw on page 55, you had a rattling cesticula again. So I see you had, it was almost mentioned twice. Why, why would birds be featured on different pages in the book? Yeah, so again, that's where I mentioned the geographical variation. So the one on page 44, that's the um, Mozambique... Um, Procerus race, whose back almost looks plain. It's so indistinctly marked. So that would have to go in the plain back group because, again, our whole book is around visual characteristics to put them in groups. And then you'll see later on when we mention rattling cesticula again, the rest of them, that's in long tail bold markings on brown back. So it's because those two races look substantially different that they couldn't be covered by one set of pointers. So you speak of the different subspecies, and I think that lends us up to the next question. You know, for we've spoken about how this book would appeal to newer birders, but do you think that this book would have value for more experienced birders also? Oh, hugely. I mean, if effectively, at face value, if you look at it, the argument would be how can you, with two or three pointers, separate one LBJ from another? 
But if you look from the separating the families to the visual groups to once you've identified your bird, if you add those collective pointers together, you could have 12 to 15 characteristics that would make a particular bird the LBJ you're dealing with. But what we've done is not put 12 to 15 characteristics on a page and overwhelm you in one go. We've split it into pieces as a phased methodology to getting to your particular LBJ. So it's probably beneficial in a sense, not just to open the book the first time in the field and try and figure out what bird you're looking at, but maybe to page through the book a little bit before you go on the field and familiarize yourself with the different species you're going to be looking for. Yeah, well, that, that too. And importantly, and there's a whole how to use this book in the beginning, it's not like a field guide where you can flip through it and just match pointers. Within a visual group, yes, the pointers are constructed in such a way that they're unique within that group. But you need to know when you're looking at a bird that you're in the right visual group to start with or the pointers actually can be confusing unless you use the book in the correct way. So you spoke of when we were chatting that it's important that people read the introduction of the book and I, I see when you go to page eight of the book it kind of gives you this how, how the book works so you basically separate families um, separate visual groups and then you identify species so let's just chat through that so somebody's in the field they see a bird on a, a tree or something and it's an lbj and they want to identify the species using those three steps how would a person get from seeing a bird to coming to a place where they correctly identify the bird if you're a more seasoned birder and you know it's a cysticola that skips out step one but let's presume you're not and you just know it's an lbj and you have no idea what you're dealing with. So you'd start on that page 10 with separating the families, and each of the families, there's a silhouette, and we went with silhouettes rather than an illustration, because a family could be quite broad, and we didn't want the illustration with color to kind of confuse and indicate that they should all look like that. So we just gave a silhouette that gives you a good uh, idea of that jizz. I think that is important i think as you as you were speaking i think it's imp the good thing about the silhouette like you were saying is that it, it takes you away from looking for the little features on the bird to getting to jizz which i think especially for newer birders i think to familiarize themselves with that yeah, you know, that all-important jizz word i think it's i think i don't know if you want to explain what jizz is quickly there because again if there's someone who's listening and says what the heck is jizz Man, i don't before you carry on just maybe explain what jizz actually means yeah, so it's general impression of size and shape. And the easiest way to explain it to someone who's not a birder, we all know the concept. So when you see a chicken, you know it's the shape of a chicken. When you see a dove, you know it's a dove. And when you see an eagle, you know it's an eagle. It's that, so you get a general impression of what type of bird it is. And obviously when you get into LBJs, it's a bit more nuanced, but the principle is the same. Prinias are very sort of blob round body with this long tail which flicks around. Um, honey guards are different shape. Yeah, so, so now you're on your separating the families and the thing we do um, at this point, and it's consistently carried throughout the book, is there's an at-a-glance block which summarizes almost in bullet point or ticks what constitutes a bird from that family. And that'll give you the features that make up that bird. And not all of them will be pointers pointing at the silhouette because some of them could be behavior or it could be habitat or something you can't actually point at. But that gives you a summary of what makes a honey guard a honey guard or whatever. 
So let's assume we're now dealing with a cisticula. We've decided that and you now go to page 36 and there's a whole write-up about the cisticulars. So with each family, there's an about the family or separating the visual groups. And we give you some general information, again, mainly aimed at identification. We're not going to give you reams of text about cisticular taxonomy or anything. What is in there is what helps you understand how cisticular identification works. And then on that page, there's a lovely look for box. And that gives you for that family what information you should ideally grab. So it gives you a short list. If you don't have too much time with a bird, that tells you, so I'm dealing with a cisticula. I want to look at tail length. I want to look at pattern, the main color of the back. I want to look at habitat, call and habits. So that tells me for a cisticula what I need to look for. For another family, those things you need to look for may be different. Then at that point, it presents you with some visual groups, again with, with um, silhouettes. So your cisticulas would be short tail with a boldly marked back, plain back, long tail, bold markings on brown back, and so it goes. So you look at your cisticula and you decide I'm dealing with a cisticula that's got a plain back. And then it tells you where to go, so that would be page 43. At this point, you will then see pointers on the birds that are orange and red. So this comes from a comment many, many, many years ago, I think before I was even born or I was so young. Um, the late, I think it was a, a ornithologist by the name of Peter Stain, said that you need at least three features to make a conclusive ID on a bird. So we said, well, why don't we stick with that? Make it a rule that you have to have three features. And we came up with what we called, based on, on his 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 quote, the three tick rule. So effectively, you have to match all of the orange pointers. If you only match two of them, and the other one doesn't match, either you're not seeing the feature you need, or it's not that bird. But you can't match one of them and go, okay, it's that bird. There are rare cases where in a group, one bird is so distinctive that there's one feature that separates it from all the others in that visual group. And then you have a lovely red tick, um, a red pointer. And red pointer is diagnostic for that group. No other bird in that, that family is going to have that. And that alone is by itself enough to make an identification. And where some of the identification features are call or habitat or whatever, then that text would be made orange or red appropriately, again, to draw attention to the fact that it's a feature. And like throughout the rest of the book, on each species, there's an at-a-glance block that has a summary of your three features that are important, and then lists similar looking and similar sounding. And then there's usually, in a lot of cases, a note that further reinforces some of the areas where you might struggle. So you mentioned puppets. If you go to um, long-billed puppet, what I tend to find is aside from the behavior, it tends to be a puppet whose back markings are less distinct than African puppet. And sometimes you look at it, you go, okay, it's plain back and then it moves and you go, okay, I'm actually seeing markings. So our premise in the book, in the notes, we say, if you're seeing a puppet, and you can't quite decide if it's plain or streaked back, there's a good chance you're dealing with long-billed or wood puppet. So all those little notes and a bit of field experience are added in the notes section 
to just further reinforce what you need to do to make an identification. And I think there's always going to be the challenge, like with cisticulars, for example, like seasonally, how their tail length would differentiate. And I think that's always going to be one of the challenges that there's going to be in terms of discerning whether the bird has a long tail or a short tail. Yes. And particularly where we've done that, where we've said long tail or short tail, we give those those ranges um, and we actually list the measurements so that you have some idea of what you're dealing with. So at least if you're familiar with a nedeki in summer, you know that when we say long tail or short tail, whatever the case may be, you have something maybe that you're used to that you can compare to, to decide is it long or short tail. Yeah, and, and over and above that, we tend to, there, there's no seasonal variation in here. And well, when I say there's none, where it's identifiably useful, yes, we do it. So with a croaking cisticular, I think it's the non-breeding female has a very short tail. So that entity, so to speak, is in another visual group with a boldly marked back short tail. But the rest of the croaking cisticulars have a long tail, so they're in another group. And then how difficult do you think it is, or is it, do you think it's quite easy for a person who picks this book up for the first time to be able to see a bird and to be able to separate and to decide which family that bird falls into? So it should be, when I say should be fairly easy, when we did first edition, we took a complete novice who was not a beginner birder. They were not a birder at all. We thought, let's actually try this book out on someone who has never picked up a pair of binoculars and looked at a bird. And let's see if we can get them to identify an LBJ. What we did in that case, obviously they were so green that we said, okay, we'll just give you a steer. You're dealing with a puppet. I mean, obviously to separate families, you probably need at least you know, a couple of months of looking at birds to have some idea of size and all those sorts of things. So we said to this beginner, okay, all we're going to tell you is you're dealing with a puppet. We'll leave you to it. And we started a stopwatch. With no experience whatsoever, he got African puppet correct in one minute, 34 seconds. Oh, that's really awesome. That I think one thing you have done, and, you know, if we talk about Ken Newman, the Newman's bird guide, where they simplify the approach to bird identification, I think one thing you have done really well is that you have, in some small way, probably even quite a significant way, identi- uh, simplified it. Because I mean, I've been going through this, and I was trying it the other day with the spe- uh, with the warblers, and it definitely did assist. It definitely did make it a lot easier. The calls were great in terms of being able to play the calls in the field to hear how the bird sounded. Um, the descriptions were well put together and what I liked with it it wasn't like like you said earlier on it wasn't a whole lot of information and what you haven't spoken about which it does also you, you do speak about the habits of the bird how the bird behaves um, which is really 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 great and another thing which also was a big help for me is you don't just you know kind of give a, a write-up of the habitat you almost have these pictures to show you know what the habitat would look like so I think you, there's a whole lot of little things in here that you've done to make it accessible even to the the newest birder and not not technical fancy terms just simple terms that almost anyone would understand yes so wherever things were subjective so if i talk about a habitat in description unless you've birded a couple of habitats you may not know what i'm talking about so let's have a picture where we can what we also try to avoid in a couple of places where you have to do it but the one thing that bugs me in birding identification is subjective terminology. And that's great if I've been birding for 20 years. 
But if you tell me longer bill and shorter bill, that's fine for me. I've got the field experience. There's a good chance I can use it. If you're new to birding, you probably can't. And the reason I say that is the best and simplest example I ever quote is there's a famous sketch, and I actually use it when I talk about the books at some of the bird clubs, um, in Black Adder, where Black Adder's talking to Percy, and Percy's talking about the Spanish Infanta who has the most incredible blue eyes, and they're bluer than the stone of Galveston. So Black Adder says to Percy, have you ever seen the Spanish Infanta's eyes? He says, no, I haven't. And have you ever seen the blue stone of Galveston? He says, no, I haven't. So he says, so what you're telling me is something you've never seen, is slightly less blue than something else you've never seen. And, and you know, if, if I tell you I've got two friends, Bob and George, and Bob's taller than George, and one person walks in the room and I ask you, is that Bob or George? Well, you don't know because you don't know how tall the other one is. No, you're 100% right. And I, think, and I think the other thing is, you know, the, the thing is a lot of times, you know, especially when you're out in the field and you're seeing a puppet and it's, you know, out in a field, you, you, you can't see whether it's, the bull's bigger or smaller it can be quite you know you often birds don't sit two or two meters away from you often you're often looking them through a pair of bins and trying to differentiate this bird from another bird 100 meters away from you and it's it can be quite tricky and i think you know that's why i like this simplified approach where you just you just know the couple of things that you, the, the few things that you be lo- you should be looking for yes exactly and so what we ended up doing was saying okay let's take the famous um, aerial displaying cesticulars, so you're zitting your cloud desert and so on. Yes, if you've got experience of how the tail length varies with season, and also you know the nuances of habitat, excellent, you can you can make an identification. However, we're not the only book to say that they're incredibly difficult to identify, and there's a handful of people who can confidently and correctly make an identification when they're not calling. So we don't put the onus on the reader to say, here's the detail of of all these subtle seasonal nuances and habitat. For you, as a beginner, here are their calls, because their calls are fairly distinctive, and here are their flight patterns. So if you talk the made simple, the subtle differences of tail length and habitat nuance are not a made simple philosophy. You need field experience to use that. And if you can do that, yes, your birding's significant levels above everybody else. But the beginner cannot do that. So we've said, here's the flight patterns, here's the calls. That's the simple way to do it. When they're not calling, we're saying our book is not aimed at you. If you want to go and read a Big Robert 7, a more detailed LBJ book or the Puppet book or whatever, yes, that will help you get to that next level. But as a made simple, that's not an easy way to identify the bird. And you need probably 10 to several decades of experience to get to that level. But it's not aimed at you. And we're not going to put that onus on you to struggle and fail because you don't have the field experience. So, yeah, Doug, we are going to be doing a review of the book in the next couple of months or so. We just are going through it field testing at the moment. Also, we are going to do a webinar with you on lbj identification made simple we're looking forward to that um so but i really from using the book for the last two or so weeks i would really recommend if you are a a newer birder or like you like doug was saying even for more experienced birders a lot of 
experienced birders even struggle with the LBJs. This is a really great book to get. So yeah, go get your hands on it. It's available. I think most retail shops will have it in. But you're not just an author of many books. You're also the co-founder of the Simply Birding website. So can you tell us a little bit about this website and what its goals are? Yeah, so Simply Birding was born out of originally, um, I started a little forum called SA Hotspots. This was long before, I don't even think Facebook for birding was really even a thing. In actual fact, Facebook might not have even existed when I started SA Hotspots. And our goal was to make birding accessible and particularly what is now called birding gen, where you find things. So we just wanted to it to be as easy and accessible for people to find something. If they want to know where a particularly elusive bird is that is only in five or ten different spots around the country, make it accessible for them to find out information on where to go and look for them. And then that ultimately grew into Simply Birding. The, the site's still ticking along and we post content content on it from time to time. The reality is, particularly from a birding discussion and forum and info sharing point of view, pretty much everything's migrated onto Facebook these days and other social media platforms. So the site's there and our philosophy still always stands that we try and make things as simple and accessible as possible. And yeah, that, that's really our philosophy. And then just the last question, what, you know, having, being able to chat to you over the last couple of months and get to know you and having some really cool conversations, I've, you know, what I've realized is the, the book and even your website reflects your approach to birding. So, you know, just can you tell us a little bit about how you approach birding and also bird identification? How does that, how does birding look like for, for Doug Newman? Yeah, so it's, So it's again, particularly when it comes to identification, I've always used this kind of method that we do in LBJs um, when identifying something. So if I see a a woodpecker, for example, I will go, okay, what what obvious feature can I see in this woodpecker that I can use? And I'll pick something that I see. So each time, depending on the angle, it may be different. And I'll go, okay. There's a feature A. How many woodpeckers in our region have that feature or don't? And then I've already whittled down to half the woodpeckers. Then I pick another one and I go, okay, there's another feature. So within the ones I've got left, uh, what feature can I now use to eliminate more suspects? And then either by that stage, I kind of know what I'm looking at or I'm down to two birds. At that point, because I've got such a small set, I now go, okay, look in the book. If it's obvious or if it's not, maybe I need to read further. I'm now only dealing with separating two birds. I can remove the noise because I've taken all the others out by taking some obvious features. And now I don't have to flip between eight or ten species and be confused with all these. This looks like this, but doesn't look like that because I'm only dealing with two or three birds. Yeah, so what's what's actually... What interesting is if you get this, get your hands on this book, you're not only going to learn the approach for LBJs, but if you you can almost apply, take that same approach and apply it to the identification of other birds you see also. Yes, I mean, the methodology applies. I mean, as I said, we applied it to, uh, we applied it to mammals. If it wasn't such a complicated topic and if I could find an author to co-author with, we'd love to do trees made simple and apply the model to other things. Because ultimately, the methodology always stays the same. It, it's not a bird thing. It's a 
it's an identification philosophy that can be applied to anything. Oh, Doug, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you giving up your time. We can't wait to chat again. I mean, this whole thing, this philosophy of, of how you approach bird identification, I mean, I'd love to just chat a whole lot more about it. I know we're going to chat to you in a future episode about bird calls and recording of bird calls and that. So I'm really looking forward to you know chatting to you again. So I think for those who you know, follow us on Facebook and YouTube and all the channels because you are going to see a webinar quite soon with um, on LBJ's Made Simple. And I, I really believe it's going to help a lot of people. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.